Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I am Joe Vendramini from the Research Center at ONA, and today our guest is Dr. Lynn Solenberger from the University of Florida in Gainesville. Dr. Solenberger, thank you for being with us today. Thanks a lot, Joe. It's good to be with you. And Dr. Solenberger, can you please provide some background information about yourself and your career? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I uh, grew up in a dairy farm in South Central PA, relatively close to the Civil War battle town of, of Gettysburg. And uh, it was a family farm. I'm one of five kids, uh, along with my parents who ran the farm. I was uh, very interested in agriculture, and that led me to uh, follow up with some training in agriculture of an undergraduate degree in biology, and then went to Penn State, uh, where I got a master's degree, and then actually came to the University of Florida, where I got the PhD. And, and Dr. Solenberger, since you took your uh, forage management position as a faculty, how long has been that you have been in that position? Right. So I started my PhD here in 1983, and I've been on faculty since uh, 1985, so uh, a little over 35 years. And, and your major duties are um, research and teaching, right? Right. So I, I teach four different classes, uh, three graduate classes, and I teach the undergraduate uh, forage class. Uh, I advise graduate students, and then I do a significant amount of, of research in the area of forage management, a lot of which is working with uh, plant breeders as they evaluate and develop new forage material for uh, cattle producers in Florida. And, and Dr. Solenberg, considering this time that you have been working closely with forage management in the state of Florida, so I'll ask you some areas, and if you can please tell me, what were the changes or, you know, the major, um, I think, steps that we went through, you know, in these last 35 years? And it may be both ways. It may be improvements or maybe something that we didn't improve. But on the forage species, pretty much, uh, that you start talking about working a lot with the breeders. So what were the changes that you have seen in forage species? And we may include cultivars as well in the state during that time. Right. Well, it, it's kind of interesting how things work out sometimes in research that uh, sometimes you end up uh, at a different point than you expected or that the answer that you, you find out, it's, it's not one that you would have predicted from when you started. When I first came here and interacting with some producers, one of the things I remember being told by, by several of them was that if you can find a perennial cool season forage that will be productive in Florida, you will really have known that, that you've accomplished something because the cool season forage gap is a major problem for producers in Florida. And, you know, so as you think about that, we, we, were, we were thinking about perennial cool season plants, things like tall fescue and alfalfa and so on, and thinking about how we might expand their area of adaptation beyond where they typically grow to Florida. And we weren't having too much success. And then as it happened, and I know you had a podcast with Dr. Quesenberry, uh, there's a lot of work being done with lymphographs. And some of the producers called him Arthur. And as it worked out, the answer to a lot of our cool season 
forage problems and the need for a cool season perennial, the answer was actually a warm season perennial. And so we end up addressing a lot of cool season forage needs, particularly in the southern part of the state, not with a cool season forage per se, but, uh, but with a warm season perennial. So clearly, uh, you know, limpo grass has, has had a significant impact over the course of that, that 35 years and the amount of area and the degree to which we depend on that forage now is, is much, much greater than, than what it was when, when I started. Another plant that we've done a lot of work with is, is perennial peanut or rhizoma peanut. And it was a small bit player whenever I started, but over time as part of some changes, I think that occurred in North Florida where some of the row crop land was no longer profitable. And so there was an opening for some other species as well as then some improved varieties uh, there's been a pretty significant expansion in the use of rhizoma peanut, particularly among hay producers in the northern part of the state. So those are two species that I would say that were here, but, but were really not very important on a large scale whenever I started, but now several decades later are making significant contributions to the forage uh, industry in Florida. And um, on on a different area now, on, because uh, when we talk to producers, uh, they always come when we talk about grasses primarily um, the cost of fertilization, right? That is the the a major part of the cost for forage production, and and that is 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 always you know the price of uh, gas, natural gas, and the price of nitrogen fertilizer go up and down, and that affected forage production tremendously. So have you also seen some uh, different approaches in fertilization uh, in the philosophy and, and use of uh, fertilizer in the state? And years ago, about the time when, when I started and soon thereafter, uh, producers were typically using what we call a complete fertilizer, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, micros, and so on. And some of the extension folks were concerned because uh, our recommendations for, for nitrogen were considerably higher than producers were using. And so they did some work on farm looking at whether producers were really getting any benefit from adding uh, phosphorus and potassium uh, to the nitrogen. What they found was that those benefits were, were really quite limited in some cases they just there just weren't any and so that led to uh, adoption of some new practices um, by producers where they focused really on applying primarily nitrogen fertilizer we did encourage them however to come back and soil test and make sure that their p and k levels were adequate but that piece kind of got lost a bit in the recommendation and so over time, things are going well with just applying nitrogen. And so they stopped worrying about P and K. And then a few years ago, we started hearing reports of producers whose behavior grass pastures were, uh, <clears throat> were failing. So we did some on-farm work and we found that um, 
P and K and, and pH were really, really uh, challenging graphs, And that's why we were, we we're losing some stands. So I think we've kind of come full circle where, uh, yes, we don't need to apply P and K every year, but we do need to uh, be aware of changes in soil pH and P and K levels. And, and Dr. Solenberger, now uh, I think you're going back to something related to, to when we start our conversation that was, um, you know, forage for the winter, right? When producers have told you that um, forage for the winter is probably one of the main limitations, mainly on, on beef cattle production. So do, did you see any changes in the area of forage conservation or strategies to provide forage for cattle during the winter? One of the interesting things that has happened uh, by increasing the amount of lymphograss uh, in the state is, as I mentioned, it's become a major source of cool season, season feed. And it has a couple of characteristics that, that lend itself to that. Uh, one is obviously it tolerates some cooler temperatures and light frosts and freezes don't bother it as much as most of our other grasses. And the other thing is that we can grow lymphograss for a fairly long period of time and still keep a relatively high digestibility. So those two characteristics lend themselves very well to stockpiling. So in the southern part of the state, we can grow a lot of that forage during the, the fall and then utilize it, it during the winter. And that is a much, much cheaper option, obviously, than, than making hay or uh, haylage. So that's, that's one, I think, major change that, that's occurred that, that's really, really important in terms of our uh, winter feeding program. One of the other things that's happened during the time frame that I've been working, and this is mainly due to the efforts of some of my colleagues in animal science, Bill Kunkel, Doug Bates, John Moore, they found that <clears throat> haylage uh, with some of our tropical grasses, a lot of the failures that had occurred up to that time were due to just a lack of understanding on our part of the nature of those grasses. Unlike some other species, those grasses really don't have a lot of what we call soluble carbohydrates food for the, for the microbes. And they also have chemical characteristics that make them fairly resistant to change in pH. So the way we preserve something like haylage is to drive the pH down. So those two factors, not a lot of available nutrients for the microbes that are gonna make the acid that's gonna drive the pH down, and then resistance to change in pH, those two things together uh, can cause us some problems. So what they found was that that wilting uh, is really a key ingredient in that process because if you dry the forage somewhat and you can preserve it as haylage even at a uh, higher pH, so the, the lack of uh, soluble carbohydrates isn't as big of an issue. And um... Now, uh, with all those changes that happened in the last 30 years, so uh, 
would you have some thoughts about um, what will be some of the management practices or some facts that probably may occur in the near future that probably will shape up even more the industry of forage production and beef cattle production? Right. Well, <clears throat> so I'm not, I'm probably not smart enough to, to predict of what will happen 35 down years down the road. And I guess I could make that prediction because I won't be around <laughs> for people to make fun of it at that point anyway, so it wouldn't matter. But one of the things that I think is likely to happen, both from a research perspective and also for, from a production standpoint, is that I think we're going to have more tools available uh, to use to make decisions. Um, I'm not sure how different our decisions will be in terms of grazing practices and, you know, when to cut or when to bale or whatever. But one of the things that's clearly happening within a research area is that we're having access to sensors that allow us to measure things and make decisions very quickly that would have taken a huge amount of work before. And I think those things or those tools are going to trickle down and be economical for a lot of producers going forward. So that maybe some management things that they don't do now because they're too time consuming, expensive, annoying, they will be able to do down the road that will allow them to make better decisions that may result in them you know, knowing when there's a particular amount of forage, uh, the nutritive value of the forage is is optimal or the moisture is optimal, some of those kinds of key decision points. Mm -hmm. and, and just complementing on the forage management and looking at the animal, right, as the, the end product, sometimes I think uh, the, the biggest challenges are in that area, right? Uh, we, we're trying to produce something um, that will be viable agronomically and then we have an animal that will benefit tremendously from, from the effort, right? And do you think there are a little more interaction and probably some tools, as you mentioned, probably can help us in that area? Right, I think, you know, clearly, and, and you know, maybe historically, if, if we've had success uh, within the forage program in, in Florida, I think in large part, it's been because of that interaction with animal scientists and and with the production community. So, you know, I think that's really kind of a key uh, aspect going forward is that we're not only plant scientists trying to see how much biomass we can produce, but we've got to always be thinking about the translation of that product into something marketable and that's going through an animal. So clearly that connection between the, the plant and animal people is going to be a, a huge part of, of success going forward. And Dr. Sullenberger, we are going towards the end of our conversation here today. And I'd like to thank you for participating in the podcast. I am Joe Vendramini. Joe what?